Amen. Amen. Welcome in. Welcome all you D-Now students. Uh, glad that y'all made it. Um, even the ones that were at my house that we may or may not have communicated effectively the, the transportation getting them here, uh, which is why they came in late. That was my students. That was at our house. Uh, whoops. Uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> Beck and I had stuff going on and we just did not communicate very well. Uh, but man, we are glad to have each and every one of you here. Man, God has done some awesome stuff, as Will said, this weekend. And uh, I believe that God wants to do something amazing in here, in this place uh, today. Uh, so I'll give you a little bit of insight into uh, where I'm coming from. Uh, I had every intention. Matter of fact, I think it might have been this service that I actually shared that we're going to be talking about stewardship today. And I had every intention of going that route. Uh, God just moved on my heart, though, on in Tuesday, and I was, I was getting texts together and doing my normal sermon prep, and I'm just going to be honest with you. God just did not release me to, to, to share that. Um, I, I just felt a very clear direction, and, and it was almost as if God was saying, you know, Alan, we're not there yet. We're not ready for that. There are things that are more important uh, that we need to make sure that we have right. Uh, and so God led me to a series leading up to, there's 28 days, by the way, between now and Easter. And God has led me to lead our church in prayer uh, over these next, this next month, right? Uh, to, to lead us as God sees fit in the area of prayer. And so our series is entitled Unspoken. Unspoken, right? We know all about the unspoken prayer requests, those things that we say, and sometimes people just say because they just say them, right? But the unspoken request, that becomes almost a joke uh, in prayer groups. I've got a prayer request, but it's unspoken. Uh, but there are things that we don't pray for. We certainly don't pray for enough. If we pray for them, we certainly don't pray for them enough, or we don't pray for them with the persistence that we need in order to seek the heart of God. You see, we, I think it's interesting because the disciples, the only thing the disciples ever explicitly asked Jesus to teach them was prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. It's why we have the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, art in heaven. Y'all want to continue with me? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. All right? It's obvious that we know how to pray. Now, we know that this is a model prayer, right? These are addressing certain things that our prayers need to have, right? And we have gone in before and taught through the procedure of prayer. Our Father in heaven, right? He is hallowed. He is separate. He is higher than us, but he is also our Father, Right, So it gives us our perspective. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we are about your kingdom, not our own. Right? Uh, forgive us. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Right? G give us provision. Provide for us. 
Forgive us of our trespasses, and may we be agents of forgiveness as well. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. I'm convinced of this in our church. I'm convinced of this in the church. What we lack in prayer is not the knowledge of prayer. It's not an endless list of rules and regulations. There's plenty of places we can go to find ways that we can pray. Some are better than others. You might want to check this one out. Hi, I'm Johnny. And I'm Chachi. We're getting here ministries. You know, a lot of people come up to us and ask us hard questions about God and the Bible and spiritual living. And you know why a lot of those questions are softball questions for us? There are actually some pretty good ones. One of them being, how do I have a better prayer life? Well, good news, we got some killer tips to a better prayer life. Before we do that, though, let's start off with a title and some dance moves. No, we're not doing a title and a dance. Let's just kind of get into this. When you're saying a prayer in public, you want to use the phrase Father God as much as humanly possible. Just last week, I said a 30-second prayer and got 17 Father Gods in it. Now look, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying with a little bit of effort, it can be done. If you have a prayer request but don't actually want to request it, simply say, unspoken. I currently have six unspokens that I'm praying for this guy about. Johnny, sorry to bother you, but I actually have another prayer request. Okay. What? It's unspoken. <laughs> okay, well that's seven. And while I have no clue what I'm praying about, someone does. Just no one human. The Bible says pray without ceasing. And well, we believe in the Bible. Chachi has been praying without ceasing for over 32 hours now. Chachi, how do you feel? What, who said what? Where am I? Well, Chachi, you have been praying for over 32 hours straight. You feel pretty good? Can I get a restroom break? <laughs> Not if you want to fully obey scripture. Let's say you become privy to some juicy information about someone, but don't want to be seen as a gossip. We've got good news. You're good to go if you put it in the form of a prayer request. I still cannot believe what Jill said to Keith. I can't believe it either. But did yeah. you know that John got canned? What? Are you? Are you Let's talk about it in a prayer group. Some think your prayer position is irrelevant, but we have found that your prayer position can not only boost your prayer life, but can stretch you physically. Chachi, why don't you go ahead and show us some examples? Well, I wasn't really planning on praying, but I guess I could give it a shot. Okay. Oh, very nice. Good, that is classic. Wow. Seriously, wow. The last thing you do when you pray is fairly obvious. You say, amen. And if you happen to be in a group of people holding hands, it's imperative that you accompany that amen with a physical action known as the hand squeeze. The squeeze lets the people on either side of you know, hey, the prayer's over. I care about you, but I'm letting go now. And when you are holding hands, Never interlock, because that can make your prayer partners a little uncomfortable. We want to thank you for watching, or 
shall I say, growing in your prayer life. Yeah, now can we do the, the title and dance moves? No, just kind of say thanks for watching and... That's seriously unreal. This is actually my miracle position. Yeah, so I show that, makes light of it, but every single one of us in here knows that. Every single one of us in here, it's funny because it's true, right? The hand squeeze, that one owned me, by the way, when the first time I saw it. Like, I care about you, but I'm letting go now. We do that, man. We just do that, right? We know the culture and how to pray, the procedure of it. Man, we've got the head knowledge down. I believe the problem in the church that we see today is has nothing to do with our knowledge. As I've said before, we are educated above our level of obedience. What we lack is the heart knowledge of prayer. Why? If, if our why was big enough, if, if, if what we were doing, the privilege that prayer was, was laid on our heart, we would do it more. It's not because we don't know how. Even a person that has been at church a very, very short period of time, though you may say, I don't really know how to pray, though the words may fumble out, like we know how to have a conversation. It's the same way with God, but we don't understand the heart behind it. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Things that we don't pray for, church, I'm convinced that we don't pray for God's presence. Not all the things that His presence can do for us. We pray for that a lot. But I am convinced that we do not spend enough time in prayer praying for God's presence alone in our life. We don't pray like if God doesn't show up, we are sunk. We don't pray like we are in desperation for Him. We don't pray like we sing that we need Him more than the air that we breathe. We don't pray to Him in these ways. We don't you understand that prayer is how we seek out God's presence in our life. And so today we're going to talk about the people of Israel and look at a very crucial moment in Israel's life and history. In Exodus chapter 33, something remarkable has happened. In, verse, in chapter 32 is the infamous story of the golden calf. Right, Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai to get the law of God. And before he is ready to come down, God says, Hey, go down. Your people are acting a fool. That's lick skillet vernacular. That's not, you're not going to find that. But they're acting crazy. All right, And he goes down. He sees that they have formed an image out of jewelry and, and valuables that they have, they've melted it down and they've made a golden calf and they are worshiping this 
image that they made. In essence, they are worshiping the work of their hands over Yahweh God, who has already, they've experienced so much deliverance that it's crazy. So many things that they could not do, that could not be the work of their hands. Now they have gone back to worshiping the work of their hands, and God is furious. God is furious with them, and so let's look first at the gift. Let's look at the blessing that God allows because he is faithful. God is upset with the people of Israel, but listen to what he says to Moses. In verse chapter 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up, out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. What's he saying? Go on up to the promised land for years, for generations, for centuries. The people of Israel had held on to the hope that had been passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who would be Israel, right? And all of God's people that one day they would inherit the promised land. That it was a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty. They would have all the rest that they would need in the promised land. And God says, leave Mount Sinai where they were at currently getting the law of God, leave Mount Sinai, leave this desert, desolate place, this wilderness, leave it and go ahead and go into the promised land. But listen to what he says in verse 2. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. There was a problem with the promised land. The reason why they hadn't already occupied the promised land, other than the fact that they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, was that the land was filled with a lot of powers. There were a lot of countries and a lot of tribes that were there, and they had to do something about them. And so God says, hey, look, I'll send an angel. Go on up, leave this desert place, go into the promised land. I'm sending an angel before you. He will drive out all of the people. That was not a problem for the angels. We find out later that an angel can destroy an entire army in one evening. In one evening, the army of Sennacherib uh, in Assyria, of Assyria, was they killed 180,000 men in one evening. Right, And so the angel who had infinite power, could have killed multitudes, was going to go before Israel. They wouldn't have to worry. They would be protected. They would have security. The land would be theirs. Listen, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Go on. I'll send an angel. I swore it to your forefathers. I swore it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And based upon the faithfulness to my promise... You can go up to the promised land. I'll provide everything that you need for everything that you've been looking for for so long. But I will not go with you. 
lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Father, give us discernment of your words. What you spoke to Israel and applies to our life today, may we seek your presence and nothing else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, God's saying the unthinkable here, is he not? I'll give you everything you want. Everything you've ever sought for in this physical life, I'll give it to you. And by the way, this is even a bigger deal because they didn't know a whole lot about the afterlife at this time. There's a process of the revelation of the afterlife that by the time we get to the New Testament, we know a lot more about heaven and hell and those sorts of things. And so the physical life was a major deal. And the promised land, in a lot of ways, was treated very similar to how we might view heaven, right? Like it is the promised land. It is where we are going. We are looking for a city, right? We are all of these, all of these things. This is what we are striving for in our physical life. And God says, I'll give it all to you. But I ain't going. Because if I go with you, I'll kill you. Your sinfulness makes me sick. And you just go. Have you ever been that way as a parent? Have you ever felt that? Now, in our wrath and our rage, we're, we're probably very sinful. Have you ever just been so fed up? We just like, get out of my sight. Get, leave. Get away from me. This is what we're doing. The difference is... This is a God who created these children. They have created these people. And he just, just get away from me. I'll give you everything that you say that you have to have. I'll give you the promised land. I'll make sure that you have safety and security. You'll have plenty of provisions, right? You'll have all of this, but you won't have me. You won't have me. Look at Exodus 33, verse 4. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm shocked. Based on the sinfulness that we see in Israel, I'm shocked at this response. But it says, when the, Lord, when the people heard this disastrous word, disastrous. And from a physical standpoint, it doesn't seem real disastrous. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned. In the same way that we mourn the loss of a loved one, they mourned. They took off their jewelry, and no one put on his ornaments. From the Lord, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. You, do, you are not easily turned or moved. When you have your eyes set on something, it is stiff. You do not, you, you, you get your mind set on things, and you want your way. You're stiff-necked. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. I would destroy you. I would kill you. <clears throat> By the way, that's exactly what happens. None of that generation saw the promised land. None of them. They all perished, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, right? He's telling them, 
I will kill you before you get to the promised land. You either go to the promised land now without me or you don't get it. And they mourned. Now, the first thought I had in this is I was pleasantly surprised by the reaction of God's people back then. Um, I was encouraged from Moses that, hey, these people are contrite. These people are repentant. These people desire the presence of God. This is encouraging to me, right? As a leader, now, yes, they have fallen woefully short, but, but man, this is where we want. When we see the sinfulness of our hearts, we should mourn, we should weep, right? Because we are separated from a God who loves us. And so I'm encouraged for them. And then I had a second thought that terrified me. And my thought was this. The church of today, not just Lindsay Lane North, but certainly not excluding Lindsay Lane North, but what if the church today was told the same thing? Hey, everything that you want to accomplish in this life, God says, I'll give it to you. I'll give it all. You'll be able to make ends meet. You'll be able to have a little bit of money left over. You'll have the big house, the big boat, the picket fence, the two-point whatever it is now, children. You'll get the promotions that you want. You'll have the reputation that you seek. Your children will be the professional athletes that you've been investing in them so many years for. They'll be those professional athletes. You'll get everything you want. I'll do one better. You'll get heaven. When you die, you don't have to worry. Eternal life is provided. You'll get to go to heaven. You'll get to walk the, the streets of gold. Sit beside the crystal sea. Walk through the pearly gates. You'll even get heaven. I'll give you every benefit of being connected to me except my presence won't be there. You won't get me. Can I be really honest with you? This is what terrified me. I don't know how many, what percentage of people in the church of the living God today would not jump at that opportunity. I don't know that there would be mourning and weeping. I think many of us would see it as all of the benefit, all of the win, and none of the loss of, of, of accountability. You're saying, I can live my life however I want. I can get all the things that you could possibly do for me, and I just don't have you? Fine, cool, great, let's do it. Where do I sign? The promised land. All the benefits of following Jesus, but I don't get people of Israel mourned a disastrous word. And I just don't know if the church today would discern it as disaster. 
people create a, Moses sets up a tent of meeting. Verses 5 through 11 deal with Moses meeting with God as a friend face to face. Moses prays intercessory prayers for his people there and on the mountaintop. Praying that God would not do what he has told his people. And listen, there's a lot that we could talk about the sovereignty of God and all of those things. Did God know that Moses was going to pray to him? Was God really going to do all those things? I truly believe that this is where we see God's sovereignty and man's free will. Right? I don't believe he made Moses pray this prayer. I don't believe he made the people of Israel repent. But I believe they did it because they understood the need for the presence of God in their nation, in their people group, in their lives. They knew that was the difference for them. So Moses created a place of margin for God to communicate with him. Listen what Exodus 33 says. Rather than looking at the gift, let's look at the giver. The giver. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with, with me yet. Yet you have said, I know you by name, but you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight... Please, God, show me your ways. Show me who you are. Moses is wrestling. He is fighting. He is he has found himself struggling with this understanding of what God just told him. Teach me your ways. How can this be the direction that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight? Not teach me your ways so that I can get all the benefit. Teach me your ways so that I can lead these people effectively and be in good standing with all the nation of Israel. Not teach me your ways so that we can finally get to the promised land. Not teach me your ways so that I can have popularity or money or fame or success. Teach me your ways that I might know you. What he's saying is, God, teach me your ways so that I can bless you. Not you blessing me, but me blessing you. May I be so enthralled in who you are that the outflow of my life is worship and praise and glory to who you are. This is what he asks. And listen to what God says. And he says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Now, 
in the Old Testament, a lot of imagery is around the word rest, and they use it in the New Testament talking about heaven. And if heaven and the promised land are related, if God is telling Moses here that I will give you rest in the promised land, then God just lied to Moses. Because guess who never saw the promised land? Moses. He was not allowed to enter in. But God told Moses, I will give you rest. So either God lied to Moses, or there is something more important that grants rest than physical blessing and circumstances. C.S. Lewis is a theologian. Um, Y'all know him for the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, hope some of you maybe have read some of his works. Uh, Mere Christianity is probably the most popular work of theology that he's done. Um, but in one of his books, he talks about his time when he came, when he met Jesus, when he encountered Jesus. Uh, Surprised by Joy is the name of the book, and he de- it's his autobiography, and he, or biography, I don't know, autobiography, I don't know, whatever, one of those. Uh, and he tells about when he came to Christ. And he says... He did not realize that salvation, that a relationship with Jesus bought him eternity. He did not realize for almost a year that because he had a relationship with Jesus, he got to go to heaven. He didn't know it. He didn't learn it until after he had been discipled a little bit. And you know what he says in the book? You know what he calls it? He calls it... It his special joy that he got to delight in God without knowing the blessing of eternal life. What he means by that is he got to understand what it meant to follow Jesus because of who Jesus is, not because of what he can do for him. He got to experience Jesus on, his, on, on God's terms, not on his own. It didn't have to cloud his mind of, oh, here's all the benefit. Why do I want to go? Why do I want a relationship with Jesus? Because I don't want to go to hell. That's a response that people give. I don't want to go to hell, so I want to come to Jesus. And all the while, we miss the fact that Jesus is worthy of being followed regardless of the blessing he provides. We are to follow God and seek his presence for his goodness alone rather than the goodness that he can play out, that can play out in our life. God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses never saw the promised land, but he experienced the incredible presence of God. God brought him to the precipice of the, of the promised land, took him up on a mountain. He looked in and he saw the promised land. And right there, boom, he died. God did his funeral. Talk about someone cool doing your funeral. God himself did his funeral. We don't know where Moses went. We don't know what that funeral looked like. We don't know what was said, but it was a humdinger. We can just go ahead and just use our sanctified imagination. He was granted rest because rest isn't in a piece of property. 
Rest isn't in some social status. Rest isn't in a 401k. Rest isn't even in heaven. In as much as rest is provided by the presence of God in our life. And until we recognize that it is God's presence that we are to seek, we will never have rest. It will never be enough. We will always be searching and we'll always be going, why? God, I'm doing all these things for you. Why would you allow this? Because we are coming to him on his terms, not our own. There is joy in the presence of God. In your presence, the psalmist says, there is fullness of joy. There is contentment. There is rest regardless of what your circumstance dictates. Keep reading. And he said to him, this is Moses. Boy, this is good. God, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. Do you hear the magnitude of those words? God, I am content to be in a wilderness desert stealing a sip of water from an occasional rock And eating manna, flavorless wafer bread, for the rest of my life in your presence than enjoying plenty and prosperity without you. If you're not going, I don't want it. I would rather die in the wilderness in your presence than to be in a land of plenty just don't know that the church is making those decisions. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, and I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? He's saying, God, you're the whole point. We're not God's people without the presence of God. For you not to be there, it's the one thing that makes us different from everybody else. So it should be the emphasis of my life that your presence be with us. I would rather be God's people in the land of promise than some random nation in a land of plenty. You are what is distinct about me. Not where we're at, not all that you provide, you, your presence. That is true of the people of God today. It's not in a nation, but it is in a people who have taken the posture of repentance, have turned from their sin. He has delivered us from an eternal slavery. We 
will surrender our life to him, then he will make us a new creature in him. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. The gift ain't the gift without the giver. The promised land is just a piece of property without the person of the promise. Relationship with Christ is not in a place. It's in a person. So let's look finally at the glory. Thirdly and finally, the glory. Having gotten a taste of God's presence, Moses wanted more. Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, please, God, show me your glory. He's felt his presence. He's visited with him as a friend face to face. But he says, God, show me your glory. Do you know what actually Moses is saying here? He's saying, God, kill me now. I want to prove to you that I care more about what you can do in my spiritual life than what I, you can do in my physical life. I want you to kill me now because nobody sees God and lives. We are too broken. We are sinful. And so Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face cannot be seen. And so that's exactly what happens. God hides Moses From his face, he walks past him and he removes his hand. And as he passes by, Moses beholds the back of God. He sees God's back. And the image is so glorious. Listen what happens in in chapter 34, verse 29 through 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He did not realize that his, the physical countenance of his face, the skin of his face, shone brightly because he had been in the presence of God. It was super obvious to everyone else. But it was not obvious to Moses. He comes down in his face. We have the light bulb version of Moses here. What on earth has happened? What a sunburn, right? Like, what is going on here? Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. In fact, it says that He had to put a veil over his face so that it was not just an unbelievable distraction. Because they recognized that he had been in the presence of God. Not that he got to go into the promised land, but that he had been in the presence of God. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul uses this story. 
to explain the situation the church finds himself in. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll be finished. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul compares the encounter that Moses had with God with the church's encounter with God through Christ. Moses, in receiving the stone tablets, was so changed by the presence of God that his face, was, it was obvious to all around, his face lit up with the glory of God. The word in the New Testament means shining. Doxa, glory, means shining or brightness. And so Moses' face was literally shining the glory of God. Paul uses that play on words and listen to what he says. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? What he's saying is the ministry of death is the ministry of the law. Moses was receiving the law. Which one of us has ever been perfect in keeping the law? No one. None of us can do that. And so, he says, it's a ministry of death. It's a ministry that ends with, oh my gosh, I can't do this on my own. I'm going to die in my sin. And it was so glorious, the ministry of death was so glorious that Moses' face shone. How much more is the ministry of the Spirit? The New Testament is not, at a at, at certain point, Moses' face started to be diminished. His, the glowing started to go away and dissipate. But he says ministry of the Spirit is even more. This is not a ministry that's leading to death. It's a ministry leading to life. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. What he's saying is, if it was obvious that Moses had been in the presence of God to the people of Israel, it should be even more apparent to the people of this world that we have the presence of God within us. If God's presence beside us leads to our face lighting up like a light bulb, then God's presence within us is everything we do, everything we say, everything that we eat, everything that we breathe, everything that we drink, all of that is for the glory of God. Not just our face, but every feature of our life reflects the glory of God and it is Obvious to a lost and dying world. That's what he says. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, the veil's been taken away in Christ Jesus. That glory that diminished on Moses' face, it does not diminish in our life. As we draw near to the presence of God, God gives us more of his presence. He reveals more of himself to us. 
Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That means if you are shining bright the day you received Jesus, you should be shining even brighter today. We are transformed, showing more glory, reflecting more glory from one level to another, to another, to another, to another. For this comes from the Lord. Who is the Spirit. You see, Moses didn't have the dwelling Spirit and presence of God in his life. We do. If you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus, God's Holy Spirit is within you. If it was glorious to experience God's presence on the outside... How much more glorious is it to experience his presence on the inside? And that we grow brighter and brighter and brighter to a lost and dying world. Is that what your life looks like? That's what's made available. Not through all the cool things that God can do through you but by drawing near to God himself. Seeking him for his presence alone. Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here today, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Listen, you don't, you don't reflect God's glory by trying real hard. It's not how you do it. Getting your life together or whatever good old boy vernacular we want to use. It comes through obedience. It comes through coming to God on his terms. God made a way for us to experience glory. And not glory, not glory in the sense that our face shines, but glory in that his presence shines forth from within us. And so if you don't have a relationship with Christ, I don't care how many prayers you've prayed or boxes you've checked or whatever else you've done, whatever exercise that you've done. If if he hasn't changed you, if you're not reflecting his glory, if you don't have that desire within you, then my friend, you don't have Jesus. That is what God's presence does in our life is changes us transforms us and renews us. So if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're the most important person in this room and I would love to invite you today to respond to that relationship. We've got counselors waiting who would love to talk to you about any decision that you need to make today. But if you need a new life in Christ, pray that you would respond. Student, adult, child in this room, grandparent, You can respond to Jesus. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross. He paid your punishment and my punishment for sin. And he desires to live within you through his Holy Spirit. To transform you and transform the lives of everybody you know through you. You got to draw. You got to draw near to him. You got to come to him on his terms. You come in surrender. Laying down your life to see him take over. So if you're here today and you need to respond to Jesus, I pray that you would do that. 
Maybe you're here and maybe your life is totally out of whack. Man, you are living for everything but God. You're not seeking His presence. I invite you to respond to Him, to get right, to realign. This altar is open. Listen, one thing that's been so cool this weekend is seeing some of our students just coming to Jesus, just laying things down at the altar. Well, we can take a cue from that, adults. Laying down our pride, forgetting about what everyone thinks, and just doing business with a God who loves us. Maybe you need to do that. Whatever decision you need to be made, I'd love to help you. I'm here to help. When I say amen, you can come find me here at the center aisle. I'd love to talk to you about any decision that you need to make for the Lord. But would you just respond to his presence today? Would you draw near to him? Father, we love you. Pray that you would be glorified in us. That your presence would shine through us. Pray for the one that needs a relationship with you. May you give them boldness and strength to in faith respond to your invitation. May we get right, Lord, our life with you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you do in our life and how you never leave us alone. stand to your feet as we sing whatever it is however you need to respond this altar's open i'm here please respond to the spirit